Well, in 14 AD, the Caesar makes the art of rhetoric required education of all citizens of the Roman Empire. So this is a time where only 15% of people can read and write, but far more of them could engage in rhetoric. And rhetoric is the art of speaking persuasively and persuading people to your opinion. And this can be done either in oral rhetoric or written rhetoric. And either way, there's a very specific formula that you kind of plug and play into. And if you look at the book of Philippians, knowing both that Paul was a well-educated Roman citizen, you see it follows the rhetorical guidelines. So the first portion of a rhetorical letter uh, written to a group of people would be the inscursio. The inscursio is a time where a person is introducing themselves and breaking the ice with their listeners. Then you get the narratio. The narratio follows that and it tells kind of the contents of the letter of the speech and uh, is going to flesh out kind of like what the body is going to look like. And then you get the prepositio where we get our English word preposition because this is the thesis statement of the letter. Now that's important because in Philippians, as we've been tracking along in the series in chapter 1, where we are today, verses 27 through 30, is the prepositio. It's the thesis of Philippians. It's a microcosm of the whole. If you can understand Philippians 1, 27 through 30, you understand, in many ways, the entirety of the book. So let's read it and then break it down a little bit. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for, your, for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So this small section, again, being the thesis of the whole, a little bit of a micro-mini-map of the, of the letter, starts with Paul saying, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That manner of life is a word that really could be translated more to a, a political word, like arrange the politics of your life or, or make the citizenship of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is the drawing out the idea that we've said in the beginning of Philippians, that Paul is writing to Philippi, a Roman colony. And now a Roman colony, again, is a place that is not initially part of Rome, but you get conquered by Rome, and you begin are given colony status, which means that your citizenship, uh, your citizens are given citizenship in Rome, which is a huge privilege in this situation. That's to create loyalty, and then also they import many Roman citizens, usually ex-military, that are going to have a high allegiance to the emperor, to your city, so that there is again a stronger tie of unity and empirical support in this new found colony of Rome. And so Philippi is given the, the coveted uh, colony status and, and citizen status. 
And again, Roman citizenship is a big deal in this time. But but Paul's saying, hey, I want you to live not as citizens as Rome, but amongst a Roman colony. Live as citizens of the gospel. Arrange your life and your community in a way that shows the citizenship that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And you say, okay, how do I do that? Two specific ways he's going to lay out, and I want to deal with the first one, or sorry, the second one first. Uh, So we're going to jump down to 29 for it. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. To live a life that is... A worthy of being a citizen of the gospel of Jesus, you must embrace suffering. Embrace suffering for the sake of Christ, as Paul says here. This is a wildly unpopular point and idea, but I will continue to say to us over and over and over again until it just drills into our neuroscience that Comfort is the exception in this life. Suffering is the rule. Comfort is always the exception. Suffering is always the rule. And you may say, I don't know if that's really been true of me, but believe me, it's coming. It comes for everyone. There's always this reality that sets in. That, yes, we can often self-medicate away and through very legal means, whether that be through drink or through food or through entertainment, you can nesthetize yourself into this reality that you're just putting other shinier, more distracting things in front of your face to to no longer tell yourself that that suffering is the norm in this life. But even in that, even in America, that we are able to do those things uh, on an unlimited way, we have more antidepressants and mental illness and mental health issues, really, than than most any other country in the world. And it's because there's something deep down that you can't get away from, that comfort is the exception, suffering is the reality. Now, that's true of everyone. It says, you know, for it's been granted to you the sake of, uh, that you could, for the sake of Christ, should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Suffering is the reality for everyone. It's not saying, hey, you have the, God has granted you the suffering, but rather he's granted you the ability to suffer for his sake versus something else. All people, you say like, okay, I don't want to be a Christian if I have to suffer. That's great. You can not be a Christian, but you still have to suffer. Like You can suffer for something much less than that. You can suffer for your job, which, you know, you can give your entire life to. And then when you retire, they're going to give you a and give you a stale piece of cake and then shove you out with a box of your stuff from your desk and then hire on and go on as if you never existed. You can suffer for something seemingly more noble like your family, but you put that kind of weight on other people's souls and and their soul just wasn't meant to bear that weight of all of your hopes and dreams and so they eventually end up pushing you away. You can suffer for so many less eternal things. And Paul says to these people, hey, you're going to suffer in this life, but God has granted you the ability to suffer for his sake, for the sake of Christ's kingdom, an eternal 
reality that you will be a co-heir of, that will be a kingdom never shaken, never taken from you. He said, that's something, if you're going to suffer, which you are, that's something actually worth suffering for. That's something actually worth putting in the, the, the pain of a Genesis 3 sin-tarnished reality, because that is the reality. Everyone suffers. Why? Because sin has tarnished this world. Death and decay are still in a place of prominence and rule in some ways, even though that, that Jesus' resurrection has said they're on their way out, they still have power. But here's the thing. This is not a doom and gloom message. I mean, I know there's something always kind of disturbing about living into the reality that suffering is a reality of life. Uh, but at the same time, it's also sometimes, I guess, encouraging the fact when you look around and you're trying to avoid suffering with everything uh, that you have in life, but yet find yourself continually failing, that that's because it's just a reality of all of humani- humanity. And yes, you can you know Instagram post in ways that makes it look like you're not experiencing it. But I think we've all kind of realized the dirty secret behind that is that that's just a facade. And so this is not meant to like try to scare or paralyze you. Because ultimately, suffering is the most shaping influence in anyone's life. If you look at any person that looks like they've been shaped in the image of Jesus, if you look at any married couple that has a deep unity and oneness together, if you look at any human in general that has a depth to their soul, I, I saw this as a meme, and I hate that it's a meme because I feel like it kind of makes it more trite. But it was a really beautiful concept. It was a meme of a mountain, which is a very you know kind of Christian meme uh, uh, territory. Even though I don't think this was exclusively Christian, but a meme of a picture of a mountain, and on it it says, "When I see strong people, I want to know what suffering and pain they've experienced in their life, because you don't." Get mountains without earthquakes, which again is almost like a very corny end to it, but it's a true concept. You see a person that has a depth to their soul and you can talk to them about seasons and years and periods of deep suffering they experienced in which they did not let go of the beautiful realities of, of what it means to follow after the footsteps of Jesus. Like that's how you are actually shaped and formed into Jesus's image is through suffering. It's not having a daily quiet time. Quiet time. You can do that till you're blue in the face, and that's good. The reason you do that is because when you then go through periods of suffering, you have enough of the truth hidden into your soul that it can begin triggering and firing out of you when you feel like you're losing all orientation to the world and everything is upside down. You have something to hold on to and remember. And so you do that to prepare for those times, but it is those times of suffering that it actually starts to press you into it becoming your soul reality, that you start letting go of the things that you're gripping onto with the death grip that were going to kill you. When you start holding on to Christ as if he is the actual only thing worth holding on to because he is. And Paul says, he says, hey, God is going to finish this work in you. He's going to finish the work he began He is going to do it, and he does it through the gift of suffering for his namesake. Again, suffering is not negotiable. I don't know that it's necessarily he's giving us that. It's that he's giving us suffering that's meaningful versus just the meaningless kind. And so, yes, again, we don't get paralyzed about it, but you prepare for it. You don't get paralyzed about winter. 
You prepare for winter, and then you live through it. So that is one of the main thesis ideas that Paul wants you to know. What does it look like to politic and arrange in your life to be a citizen of the gospel? It is to embrace the reality of suffering for Christ and and to walk into it with eyes wide open and prepared. And how do you then weather through it is actually the first thing that he says, going back up to verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. He gives two metaphors. One, a militaristic one, and another, an Olympic athletic one. The first one is, may uh, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Standing firm is militaristic language. Think of Custer's last stand. Think of making a militaristic stand. Think of, in Hamilton, we got to make an all-out stand. It's always used in war terminology. It is a group of people, typically ones who are often a smaller, maybe more vulnerable group of people that uh, are, are fighting off an encroaching, more powerful enemy. And they do so by putting their backs up against something safe, whether that be a fort or a mountain, and then they unify together and as one unit, not breaking unity, no one running and fleeing because then that provides an open opening and a vulnerability, but all together as one, they stand and withhold out the enemy and often sometimes could hold out a more stronger army that was less organized, merely because they were all working as one. He's bringing in military language again because military or, or wartime is often sometimes the most unified a people group will find themselves in their history, that there's a common enemy and a common goal. And by the way, Paul says, your common enemy, in this case, you do have an enemy, it, it's not the other people of Philippi. He makes it clear in his writing that you do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but the spiritual forces of this world. He says, those people that are around you, they're not your enemy. You're not fighting against them. If anything, you think of them as captives. They are captive to the spiritual realities and the warfare that's around them. You are pressing against the dark spirits, the spirits of the Satan, the opposer, and the forces that would come to destroy and take away all that is God's kingdom. And he says you do that by, by not opposing people, but by loving each other and loving people. Because there is nothing more disruptive than loving people your enemy who is attempting to persecute you. There's all that imagery in the Bible where it says like, you know, hey, give your enemy like love or, or water or, or care for them. And it'll be like keeping burning coals on their head. And it's not like saying like, hey, here's a glass of water and here's a little this. Like it's, it's saying, no, as you give them love as they persecute you, that will be the most startling effect to wake them up from their captivity to a force of hatred and selfishness gain because they are trying to persecute someone who has no interest in returning fire 
but only is going to return love to them. I mean, because when people fire at you, they expect you to fire back. When they get aggressive, they expect you to push back. But if you instead absorb it and show them love, that's disorienting. And so a lot of times then they'll actually get more aggressive just trying to like say like, well, wait a second, what do you, what's your angle? What are you trying to do? But as you continue to absorb that, which is the hardest thing to do after you've absorbed something and then they get more aggressive. But if you can do that, then eventually over time, the chains fall off and they realize they have to deal with the shame of them dealing completely selflessly and you dealing in a way that is completely loving. And you can't sit in that power for long without eventually laying down your weapon and examining yourself. It's a powerful way. I mean, that's what Paul says. It's like when you do that, when you actually like live as citizens of, of Jesus, it's going to be a wake-up call to them that they're heading in a path of destruction and that you are heading in a place of salvation. And, and that this is the light and that they are living in the darkness. And so he says, stand firm, loving your enemies and loving each other. Having a sense of, hey, we're all unified together. We have each other's backs. We're caring for each other. We're thinking of each other. Then it uses this Olympic athletic imagery, continuing on that same verse. So he says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side in the faith of the gospel. That word striving is what you would do as an Olympic athlete striving for a goal, putting your body through through training and through the pain of, of getting stronger, breaking muscles down so they build up even stronger, and you strive towards a goal. And if you stride side by side with others, it's a team sport where you're coming together and you have a common goal and you are pushing and training and practicing and, and putting aside all differences so that you can strive side by side. I think of the movie Miracle, which tells the story of the, uh, the amateur hockey team in the Olympics that defeated the Russians, which was like, you know, the biggest upset in sports history ever. This was college Americans who are not known for their hockey skills beating professional Russians who, like, you know, I mean, the hockey is like their thing. And... And it, it, there's a scene in that movie where most of the first half of the movie, they all have these divisions for these other teams they play for, which are their college teams. And so whenever asked, who do you play for? They'll always say like University of Minnesota, or they'll say University of North Dakota. They'll always talk about the college that they play for first. And so there's this scene where the coach, after a game that they had played poorly in, he lines them up on the ice and he has them do wind sprints again and again, hour after hour. I mean, you actually see time passing. You get the idea that they have to close up the ice, and he says, give me the keys because they're going to continue going. And so they continue to do wind sprints for hours. Guys are throwing up, and it's getting to the point where they're like saying they have had enough, they need to get off. And they keeps every time asking, who do you play for? And eventually one of the leaders of the team stands up and says, I play for the United States of America. And then he whistles and says, you all can go home now. Because the most unifying thing often is a sports team. People will talk about the time where they felt most unified to others is when they were in a locker room with a sports team that had a common goal. We're trying to beat our record from last year or beat our arch rival or make state or, or win a championship. And when you do that, you set other petty differences aside and you start actually focusing on, hey, this is actually what matters. And Paul says, I want you to have that kind of mindset. I want you to set aside 
petty little differences and petty selfishness and focus on building the kingdom. Focus on loving one another. Focus on being there for each other because you're going to experience suffering. You're suffering for the sake of Christ and you've been granted the ability to do that, but you need to do it together. Nobody can hold on to this noble task uh, of holding on to the kingdom and building it in when they're suffering if they're not doing it in unity with others, encouraging them, absorbing pain for them, sitting next to them, just having the, the ministry of presence. You know, like the ministry of presence, I, I think of um, a movie, which I, I said this morning at our gathering, Lars and the Real Girl, which is, you know, an interesting movie to reference uh, in a sermon. I really don't know how to give you a great uh, plot synopsis of it, but essentially uh, Lars, uh, you know, a character played by Ryan Gosling, uh, falls in love with a girl who's an inanimate object. She's a blow-up inflatable girl. Um, and that's all I'll say on that. And at one point, she dies in his mind, I guess. It's a very quirky movie in many ways. But then he says to everyone, my, my, my girlfriend has died, and he begins mourning. And when he does that, the women around him, these old women who are in his life, show up the next day with casseroles, and they fill his freezer with casseroles, and they're knitting needles. And they sit down on the couch and begin knitting. And he says, what are you doing here? She said, when bad things, they say, when bad things happen, we show up and we cook. That is a beautiful picture of just the ministry of presence, of being there for people. Like, that's what the church should do. We should be people that when bad things happen, we just show up and we cook. We bring food. We bring comfort. We bring presence. We bring encouragement. We bring just a, a, a shoulder to be there because people are going to suffer. It's just reality in this world. But yet when they suffer, they don't have to do it alone. When we suffer for the sake of kingdom, the kingdom, we certainly don't have to do it alone. We can strive side by side together, standing firm as one spirit. And that's what it looks like to arrange a community to look like the kingdom. And one that when you do that, when you live as a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom of, of Christ versus a, a kingdom of, or, or, or a citizen of Christ versus a citizen of Rome, then you fight for a deep unity and in that you embrace suffering as a corporate responsibility. And it's something that this is not just the concept of all Philippians. This is a repeated concept in Paul's writings over and over and over again. It's going to come back to this point. I said at the beginning of this, of this series as I was studying, I'm going to let the teaching of this series be as repetitive as Paul is because Paul's repeating something over and over again because he's trying to teach it. And that's how you teach. You repeat. You drill it into your, your listeners' heads. And that's what he's doing. And I think he's drilling in a message that I think has a lot of relevance for 2020. And so we're going to continue to sit into these themes of unity and unity and suffering and opposition so that we might be citizens of the kingdom of Christ.